0: Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host Bart VanderZee, and today I am joined by Jeff Nichols, who is a incredibly esteemed author, drummer, educator, all around great guy. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you. What a nice introduction.
0: We're here to talk about kind of a broad picture of um, the history of some British drum brands, which, as an American, um, I'm kind of fascinated by because it's it's sort of a parallel to a lot of what we had going on here in America.
1: Uh, yes, it is. Um, I, I think we it's parallel, but we, we obviously we were, we were a bit behind. Well, actually, we started ahead because we've been making drums in Europe and Britain for hundreds of years, obviously. And that goes back to the military, side drum and bass drum and so on. Um, but then things changed drastically at the turn of last century when... And I suppose that's very much due to the arrival of jazz yeah. in America. Um, so people started to take the drums a lot more seriously, and, and then we had the invention of the, the drum kit as, as we know it. You know, we all know the, the history of that. Sure. Um, and we were very much enamoured of America, uh, and the British companies did slavishly copy the American companies in the you know in the early years uh, of last century. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's where it is really, you know, so we were already building drums obviously, uh, but they were pretty outdated. Um, and then, uh, we had uh, a whole history of, I think you had like, for instance, you know, in America you would have vaudeville and over here we would have music hall.
0: Sure. Um, yeah.
1: and then, uh, and then popular music was a lot of orchestra, a lot of dance orchestras were in the hotels. So, we had hotel orchestras, and they they were like the pop stars of the day. Hmm. Um, And the music they were playing was pretty crummy. You know, it was pretty outdated and sort of naff, if you know that expression. (laughs) You know, so once we started to hear American music, we started to follow American music, obviously. And then the drum kit started to, you know, really take off in America, and we started to follow those designs. Um, So, in a way, that's where we start.
0: That's fascinating because it's. in the jazz scene early on, I know that the hotels were heavily involved with the, you know, early jazzers like Gene Krupa and stuff when he would play and they would, a lot of radio companies would broadcast from the hotel and that's what people would listen to and say live from whatever hotel. And um, so it's just interesting that that's also been happening in different parts of the world uh, sure. br- the the involvement of hotels which that that went away boy you don't there's no <laughs> real you know <laughs> yeah. relevancy with hotels and music now
1: no no well i suppose that's due to the arrival of the radio um and cinema yes. uh you know the talkies disappeared and um you know so all that uh, all that pre-war sort of um you know, you know uh, traps and sound effects and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was all part of sure. part of the music. and uh, the war is the big thing, really, uh, so, uh, over here, as you can imagine, uh, the biggest thing that's ever yeah, happened. Um, and let's it. But, but before that, things were, were getting going. I mean, I um, in terms of the development of British drums. I, I, I should big shout out to, I'm indebted when I first became interested in this which is um, I suppose in the late 80s early 90s there was a fellow in, in London called Lou Dias uh, that's D-I-A-S Lou Dias and Lou hmm. wasn't a drummer uh, but he owned a drum shop called Supreme Drums in Walthamstone, North East London and he was uh, really into books, and I suppose he was a bit of a scholar. And he was the first person that I know of um, who decided to, you know, to, to set this down, to write it down and work out, you know, wh- where had British drums come from and, you know, the ones that survived, particularly the strands which we're going to talk about and which I think are probably of interest to most people are the ones that survived um, the war years. And came through in the late forties, nineteen fifties, and went on to be used by you know all the the English drummers, the UK drummers, who became international stars. You know, so yeah. uh, the drum sets that were available to your um, T. Ringos and your Charlie Wattses and all the rest of them. Um, uh, there was a series of them, and, and like I say, the, the the company that obviously is is known internationally is Premier. So whereas mm-hmm. You know, in, in America, you had, you know, Gretsch, Slingerland, Ludwig, Roger, and so. And you had, you know, Lady before that. Yeah. Uh, in Britain, by the time the sixties came around, there were still several strands, but the one, the only one that really survived, um, became international, was Premier. So, uh, what Lou did, what Lou did was he recognised four strands, and nowadays we tend in the UK. I think, I think I'm safe in saying this that in actual fact there are five strands and can i just just before i you know for a mention all these i'll just say that the other people also i mean uh, there's a guy called alan buckley do you know of alan buckley no, uh, no. who's the sort of do, he's the doyen of collectors in this country mm. he almost by accident he went out into the 80s and hoovered up every old drum set that was lying around to the point where <laughs> he'd got this little house in, in the Midlands with 80 drum sets. And when I say 80 oh drum God. sets, yeah, I mean, I mean wow. and this is the old stuff. This is the stuff that little old, you know, widows had found themselves left with after the war. <laughs> you know, where, they, where, sure. where their husbands finally died off oh, and they no. left this junk. <laughs> and uh, Alan, That's who's funny. an obsessive character. It <laughs> yeah, he is, yeah. I mean, he's an obsessive character, Alan. And uh, he's very well known to Rob Cook as well. And um, he, he just went <laughs> and hoovered the whole lot up, and he just couldn't stop himself once he started. You know, uh, we get obsessive about collecting. And like I say, you go around to his house, and he'd literally have 80 Drum sets. He's a very small house, by the way. He got sheds in the garden. He got them in the <laughs> in coal cellar. He got. Um, and like I said, a lot of these kits, they were big old kits, you know, with consoles and you know, dance bands, bass drums, twenty-eight inch yeah. bass drums, everyone knows what. So he um, and he was a great help to me when when I wrote the drum book, um, he's, if you, if you see the drum book, which a lot of people like because of the pictures, <laughs> the, uh, the first half a dozen kits, which make the book are all Alan Buckley's kits and they're really old kits from the thirties, uh, through to, you know, a Gene Krupa kit and so on. And, uh, um, and, and then the third person I, I really w- want to mention is Dave Seville, uh, who, who uh, uh, for 16 years ran a thing called the Old Drummer's Club over here with a with a newsletter uh, that um, just had this amazing amount of information. Uh, and so those are the people who I was relying on in particular, and lots of other guys as well, and maybe I'll <laughs> mention a few names as we go along. Um, <laughs> sure. But those guys really sort of got me interested in the history of it. And Anyway, to get back to these strands... Um, yeah. If you're okay with this, I'll I'll just reel them off. Um, Please. Okay, so here we go. Number one is John Gray. Um, Now, this goes back to, oh, God, this goes back into, I think, around 1830 where a, a guy called Solomon came up from the West Country to London and started to... Uh, part of his company had a son in law called Barnett Samuels, I believe, and he uh, started to import musical instruments from all over the world. So a, a lot of these companies just started out as musical instrument importers and distributors; they weren't necessarily manufacturers to start with. So anyway, this um, this strand leads to uh, a made up name called John Gray. They used the name John Gray because it seemed. Innocuous in English, uh, and <laughs> that yeah. eventually, you know, without going into too much detail, that you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism, obviously, and there always has been, uh, and, and, sure. and so they just thought if they called themselves John Gray rather than uh, Solomon, or Barrett, they they uh, they would do better business, and that leads on to uh, Shaftesbury and Rose Morris. Did you know the Rose Morris Company? No. Uh, how how do you, Rose Morris? You uh, okay. say. Rose, Rose and Morris, R O S E, Rose and Morris, okay, M O W R I. Anyway, that's that's John Gray. I'll I'll just listen first, and then we'll come back to them and uh, have a little look at you know. Okay, so the second one is uh, John Dallas. So we've got two Johns. We've got a John Gray and a John Dallas. And John Dallas, um, uh, same thing, same thing. Importers. Uh, John E. Dallas, J E. Dallas. He's generally shortened to Jed's son. So Johnny e. Dallas and Sons led to Jed's son. Does that make sense? A company yeah. called Jedson. <laughs> okay, so their pre-war drums are called Jedson.
0: John Dallas and Sons led to Jedson's.
1: Yeah. So just one word, J-E-D-S-O-N. So Jedson, you'll Got see it. Jedson drums. That leads on to Carlton drums, which you may have heard of, and Heyman, which sure, he you yes. certainly will have done. Uh, yep. Carlton Hayman, and then eventually to uh, Arbiter Autotune. I don't know if you've seen Autotune drums. Yeah, um, I've seen them. Yeah. Arbiter. Yeah. Uh, so that that's that's the second stream. Okay. The third one is Boosey and Hawks, and again, Boosey and Hawks you may well have heard of because they, to this day, are one of the major uh, music publishers in the world. They uh, hmm. they publish a lot of modern classical music. They, they own the copyrights to that. But Boots Hawks um owned a thing called Ajax drums, which, again, you may have heard yep. of Ajax. And they uh, they had other subsidiaries, Edgeware and Stratford, and also they made a thing called Roger, English Rogers, I should say. Uh, so they actually, this is a really extraordinary thing, they made Rogers, actual Rogers drums under license in London um, in the 60s. Wow, and then they finished up with a thing called Ajax New Sound uh, before they finally gave up the ghost. The um, Fourth one, just to make things a bit easier, is Premier Premier, okay. uh, and there and Olympic. Do you know about Olympic?
0: Yes, yeah, it was like sort of a the cheaper version. It just yeah, but budget. like the shells were the same exactly. Yeah,
1: they're exactly right, exactly right. But a budget Premier. Um, okay, so all those four strands: John Gray, Dallas. Ajax and Premier, put it simply, um, they, they were all in, in London because, as you know, we're a very London-centric country. Um, and then the fifth one, which Lou didn't sort of include in his initial treatise, uh, is a company called Beverly, uh, and Beverly comes from the north, far northeast of England, and they made great drums. And again, they made it over to the States, so you may possibly have come across Beverly drums. Yeah. um The point about all this lot is those are the five strands that made it through to the late forties, fifties, uh, and were around when you know when uh, that generation, the great generation of British drummers, were growing up. There were lots of other companies, obviously. You know, um sure, of course, uh, there were companies, and uh, uh, Birmingham is the UK's second city, and there were companies like Windsor, uh, Peerless, and Parsons are, Mostly they uh, they were around. There were other companies in London, AF Matthews, Scarth Boyle, <laughs> Warwick Supreme, <laughs> Foots, which is the uh, drum company, and you know there are loads of others. Um, but basically, those are the ones that were around before the war, and so less interest to us, perhaps. Sure. I mean, I can go on. I mean, there, uh, there are other companies like after the war, like Reno in Manchester, mm. who made very strange, monstrous drums with incredible internal tuning mechanisms. They were up oh, in wow. Manchester, I believe it or not. Uh, there are legendary characters in London, Doc Hunt, Vic O'Brien, um, Eddie Ryan later on. Um you know what I mean? So, and, the, and and there's been a revival in British drum making in the last, you know, since the turn of this, this century, funnily enough. Um, so we now make fantastic drums. Uh, talk about that another time, perhaps, you know. <laughs> the but, new um, stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the new stuff so, you know, though. It's it's wonderful, you know. Sure. Natal, that's great. Which is Jim Marshall, you know. Um, that's his legacy and the British Drum Company. Say that again, yes. the British Drum Company who makes some of the best drums in the world. Um, yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. So those are the five. Those uh, and and uh, just another quick shout out. Um, Mike Ellis, who I believe you talked to. Yeah, uh, has done really good spotted histories of these five strands so if you want to go into detail you can go online and see i mean this is the wonderful thing but you just google all this stuff now uh and you will find them you will find these these companies there and you know the detail and and, and also uh, a lot of the catalogs i mean it's all about i mean this is the it's amazing uh uh another good friend andy ewell started a site called drum archive uh, do you know drama? Oh, man,
0: I love it. That is that is how I've found most of these like about most of these companies because it's so cool because you see the logo and then you see the the little flag of the country next to it and you go, yeah, <laughs> okay, what's up with Beverly? Okay, what's up with Ajax? You know, you can you can actually buy country see or what's going on in Italy? You know, you can see these companies. So he he's done an amazing job putting those together. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. So you sort of don't need. I mean, with... <laughs> when i was doing the the drum book because none of this existed so you you know it's i mean nowadays it's yeah. it's all there so if anyone wants to write the next drum book and try to uh, collate the entire history of the drum set um yeah it's a little e- nothing little stopping easier you anymore yeah <laughs> it, it's it's all there you know you sift through and, wow. and, and obviously the forums and stuff are amazing you know but um sure um so there you have it um I think the thing about um, these companies, you look at the catalogs very, very early on, and you know, they started off with rope tension drums. Sure, and then of course. They went to single tension, and then they went to tube lugs and so on. Uh, and then once they got past tube lugs, you'll notice that all of them, and I, 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 think, I think I'm think i right in saying in all of those five instances that I've just mentioned, um, they they all started to copy... Leedy lugs okay uh, and what happened was uh that something very strange happened which is that in 1926 i believe george way uh of Leedy, mm-hmm. as, uh, as most people know i think uh he actually made it over to 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 the uk uh, along with a, another chap called jack roop and they brought Leedy products with them and they made a huge impression on everyone who was making drums at that time. So people saw these leady drums and they were so far in advance of anything that you could get in the UK at the time, uh, that they were just copied, absolutely slavishly copied. And I think in a way this is probably a little bit like, you know, when the Japanese started off in the sixties and so on, and they saw American drums and their first attempts were Absolute slavish copies, yeah. And uh, I suppose the Japanese went on to improve on them in in many ways because you know that's the modern era and technology and all the rest of it. You know, um, uh, and then the you know eventually the, the American companies fought back, and you know uh, we, we are where we are. Um, but uh, I think a similar thing must have happened then, that uh, because in the nineteen twenties in the UK people did start to become you know, we had the roaring twenties as you did, you know, and, and like I say, you know, everybody was having a great old time, you know, dancing around the, the hotels, or at least the middle classes were, <laughs> this is very much a middle class, and sure. upper class <laughs> thing. You yeah. Know. Not so fun if you're yeah, not in the middle yeah, class. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the average person didn't really have access to the, these wonderful hotels and all their marvelous orchestras with, you know, any number of big sure. name, um, you know, big name band leaders, Geraldo, Bert Ambrose, I don't know, Jack Hilton, Victor Sylvester, Henry Hall, they're all sorts of and, and drummers, by the way, some of the early English drummers, Max Abrams, Joe Daniels, Max Bacon, Ozzy Noble, Boris Perthill, I'm just reading off a list there, Jackie Greenwood. One. these are guys, you know, from the thirties and, and and to you know, through the war as well through the, the, the early 40s and so on. Um, these were the names that we saw in the catalogs. Uh, they, they were aware, and, and also Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong actually made it over here in the 30s and were there, uh, aware people are of that, that, um, you know, the British musicians, because it, it was pretty lightweight stuff. You know, it was it was a mixture of, you know vaudeville and dance you know you had strict dance tempos but the whole european things about waltzes and quadrilles yeah whatever you i don't even know you know um um uh and it was pretty uh, pretty sad really a lot of that stuff um <laughs> and i i think the british musicians did gradually become aware that there was something happening over in the usa and um uh, they were lucky enough. People were. The people who were hip enough did actually see, you know, Duke Ellington, uh, you know, the reviews of Ellington when he came yeah, over. Yeah. I think probably as early as 1933. Wow. Uh, people were just floored by this. And, and of course, the other thing was that um they didn't quite know which way to go because, you know, jazz was seen as a fad. Same as when rock and roll came along sure, in the 50s. Sure, People thought, oh, it's just a fan that will go away. You know, it'll go away. The big bands will come back. You
0: know, no, they won't. I feel like Americans a lot of times um, forget sometimes that the biggest, one of our biggest exports was jazz music at that time. Oh, like God, that's yeah. what really yeah. our our like yeah our thing that kind of changed the world was jazz music.
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I know. Uh, you know, we've been in enthrall to America for that throughout. Throughout the last century, certainly, and probably still today, but um, that absolutely determined the way drums were going to go and the way music was going to go, both in the you know the twenties and thirties, and then again in the fifties and the sixties. Yeah, um, this is a very loose thesis here, sure, but sure. Um, uh, a similar sort of thing. You, you can make arguments was going on in the case, but certainly what happened with the drum companies was. They took the Leedy samples. I mean, you could buy Leedy drums over here uh, before the war, and they, you know, you could buy uh, K. Zildjian's over here be- before the war. Uh, they were expensive, but they, they they were they obviously were around. I mean, occasionally a leady, you know, a beautiful Leedy snare drum will turn up. I know someone discovered one in the junk shop two or three Hot. years ago to their God. utter disbelief and, <laughs> um, Amazing. Uh, and bought it for next to nothing, and it, it turned out to be the real thing. So where where did so that is. come from? Lord knows, yeah. um, but it worked, they were over here. But if you look at the early catalogues of uh, uh, Premier and uh, uh, all all of the companies, um, Ajax and so on, um, you, you'll see uh, John Gray and so on. Uh, you will see that the the drums were exact copies. I mean, they they started off with the you know the, they have a tube log or whatever, and then before you know it, they're they're doing. Um, you know, the little LED press lug, you know, with a little four-screw um, four attachments. And then yeah. immediately after that, they would move to the X, what I call the Xbox lug. Um, and this happened in the 30s. And you see that on Premier Dominion and Dominion Aces and Cotton Kings and so on. I, again, I, I don't want to go into too much because I, I, I forgot more than I ever new i forget what you know the yeah. names of all these drums i've got them all down there i've been doing i've been doing a vintage column in rhythm magazine for the last 30 years so uh, we've done them all you know yeah you um, i've i've <laughs> i've
0: read it and yeah we'll yeah. talk about it more at the end but you you are obviously a great author what we'll, we'll kind of hit, like talk about all of your stuff you're working on but um yeah now yeah. so out of all of these brands so like let's say the beverly the ajax they're all kind of uh competing with each other right was there was there a ton of drummers i guess it's it's so like in america where post ringo yeah post ringo the world blew up with that but um let me back up real quick before we get into that so during the war i always ask this question when we're talking about brands like this because i like to get a little bit of that history were these companies i know Premier was were these companies then sit like like did it say, okay, you guys are now making, um, like with Premier, I think Mike Ellis said it was like the the scopes or the sights for guns. Yeah. Were they all basically transitioned during wartime to other things?
1: Uh, as far as I know. But the the, the awful thing is, is that we know the history of Premier pretty well. Um, we don't yeah. know so much history of what happened to the others. So um, certainly... I mean, I haven't given you, I sh- I'm being very remiss here. I could give you a lot more history on, on each of these companies and what they were up to. And, you know, maybe I'll give you a little bit more if we've got time. Um, sure. But they all had to go on to other sort of work. There was a very limited um, use for uh, instruments, you know what I mean? So uh, certainly drums. Um, and they pretty much shut down uh, the drum production during the war. I mean, I should say that by the end, you know, we, you know, saying that during the thirties, they, they slavishly copied Leedy and Ludigas as well. And some of those drums, if you find them, by the way, they're fantastic drums. They're just as good. You know, they're beautifully made drums mm. and they survived and they're certainly worth searching out. But by the late thirties, they'd already started to go their own way. So by the late thirties, you'll find all of them, you know, uh, Carlton, Dallas, Premier and so on, all uh, devising their own uh, Art Deco style lugs. Um, and they're, they're very beautiful and uh, they, they, you know what I'm saying is that they'd already deviated from the American model to come up with their own sure. versions. They, they, they were steaming ahead. So yeah. th- there was a huge as far as I can make out, there was a huge need for the, you know, there's a big market for all this sort of stuff. Um, and they were all doing pretty well as far as I know. And they were, they were like I say, they were all pretty much based in East of London, uh, the Northeast, the, you know, down towards the docks, east central of the city and where the people know London, most of those companies were there and they were most, hmm. mostly manufactured there. I should just very quickly mention Beverly by the way, because Beverly is in the Northeast of. Uh, of England, which is a heavy in, heavily industrialized area. And Beverly was important because they had a huge factory there, a huge factory there, churning out all sorts of stuff. And they their big thing was they made uh, consoles. So, and this is something that was very big in this country, I think partly because of the hotel thing. People didn't do touring. You know, like in America, people would tour, I suppose. Um, because, you know, the huge distances. We're here. You tended to set up in the hotel or the, the theater and leave it there. Um, so they'd, they'd sort of stick these huge drum kits on consoles, the console being a uh, an advance on the traps tray. Uh, I'm sure, you, sure you're aware sure. of this. Uh, yeah. and, you know, and Beverly made these consoles for, for most of the other companies. So, you know, like, for instance, Premier's Swingster console was very famous. It was actually made by... By Beverly up in the northeast, and you know, um, Chick Webb famously had one of those with his Gretchen Gladstone kit. Yeah. So you know those famous pictures of Chick Webb playing exactly. that amazing kit he had, and if you notice, he's got this big console, and that—that um, that I believe is a Premier swingster, and that would have been made by Beverly up in the northeast. So, um, so that was going on anyway. So, just thought I'd just throw that one in there. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Carlton. Carton from the house of Dallas, John E. Dallas and Sons, <laughs> uh, which is cut down to Jetson. Um, Jetson drums were, were made by, oh, well, this is a bit of a, I'm I've to on too many tangents here, but uh, <laughs> they were made by premier earlier <laughs> early on uh, but they they after 1935 they started to make their own drums under the name Carlton so Carlton's a big name um and Carlton the name Carlton came from the Carlton hotel which was a huge landmark in the west end of london uh very famous hotel it was very posh it was run by Cesar Ritz, mm. you know, the Ritz sure. is a name that you probably know, putting on the Ritz. Yeah. Um, sotelier hotelier. And he, his head chef was Escoffier, who was the, like the greatest French chef of, <laughs> of, 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 the day, you know, so, so they call them Carlton because it was at the time. And there's a bit of an R in here, which is that, um, that the Carlton hotel is not there anymore. It was, it, it was, it was bombed in 1940, uh when we had the blitz yeah. in london you yeah. know the german blitz on, on london it was badly bombed and badly damaged and so it's sort of finished in 1940 and um the irony there is that's exactly the same time that the premier factory was blown up in 1940 uh, and the premier factory by the way in standard road is is literally half a mile from where i'm sitting here now wow or it was before it was blown up uh, that that's uh that's where i am in that sort of northwest london wembley sort of area people have heard of wembley sure. uh that sort of area um so yeah there, there's a connection there um yeah. scary so uh, so yes <laughs> i think the the premier story is is pretty well known and i think mike's probably given you a, a good account of that hasn't he um so they all shut down. I mean, what, what happened with Premier was that, uh, as I just said, they, they gradually moved from the West End of London as they got better. Premier were very successful right from the very beginning. Uh, Premier is the last of these companies to be formed in 1922, um, and uh, Albert Della Porta went straight in to produce the best. I mean, if you think of the name Della Porta, which is DP, uh if you put that backwards pd that's premier drum um and he, he specifically did this because he wanted to make premier drums his son told me this by the way Christopher de porter he was an amazing person i got to know a little bit um and he wanted to make the best drums right from the very very start so he started out making drums you know like for instance they they supplied drums to to jedson for, for a couple of years um but very quickly he decided that's it we're going to make premier drums they're going to be the best and he he never dropped his standards throughout his entire life so they are wonderful drums all the way through and they moved from you know started off right in the middle of london in soho and, and gradually moved out until the, there's a big industrial estate Just down the road from here and obviously that was a target for the germans in the war so they blew it up and they they just they just got this they've been in there for a few years actually but what was a state-of-the-art drum factory um and it was it was burnt to the ground basically Uh, as far as you know Clifford told Hmm. me that the only thing that left was like a a metal box like a metal safe (laughs) which luckily had that's awful yeah (laughs) so luckily it had uh various papers and Patents or whatever, you know, in in you know his, uh, his deeds of ownership or whatever. And and the other thing that was interesting is you talk about you know everybody shutting down during the war. Uh, Premier, as you rightly said, was uh, was assigned You had to get a job from if you want to stay in business. You had to get to do something for the war department, and it just happened that Premier w- w- got this job to make um, bomb sites for anti tank a- aircraft and. Um, they they were completely bummed out. So if the, the the deal was if you didn't get yourself back up and running within ten or ten days or two weeks or whatever very short space of time you would lose that contract. So he would lose the company. So he got got on the train with a chap from the war department, and they went north. They thought, well, we've got to get out of London. So they were on the way up somewhere. I'm not sure where they were on the way, but they they dropped off in Leicester almost by accident, I was told. Um, And they got off Leicester and they found these terrible old Victorian uh, factories that were in a dreadful state, you know, sand on the floor or whatever. And they said, okay, this is it. And off they go. And, you know, within 10 days, two weeks, they'd managed to, (laughs) to, you know, get electricity in and get roofs on them. And and they were back up in production, you know, so this is serious stuff, you know, (laughs) but that, that's the thing. And, uh, and then from that period, uh, again, you know, Clifford Delaporte said to me that, uh, the Ajax and Beverly were the two companies you mentioned. He said they, they actually were gearing up for, for drum production towards the end of the war. So they were ready to get going you know, as soon as the war finished, and Premier didn't. They were working on these, uh, you know, this War Department stuff. They were a very altruistic company, <laughs> Premier yeah. certainly, Albert de was, and Clifford de la son. Uh, so they were working on this right up to the end. But by 1947, they completely resigned, and then all the companies did. They all came out of the war and completely redesigned uh, the drums for the, for the modern era, you know, by that time, you know, we'd had the, England, Radio King, and so on. And and, and, and again, as I'm sure Mike will have told you, but I'll just very quickly say, the thing about Premier was because they'd been engaged on this very exacting work uh, for gun sights, this was much more accurate than the work they needed to knock up a drum. So they developed this expertise in die-casting, which is why immediately after the war, premier emerged with these amazing die-cast art deco designs. Uh, Albert Delaporte's son, Clifford Delaporte, did an engineering degree uh, and came on board uh, in 1946 and set up a, a design department, and they just carried on this idea that they were going to make the best. And that's why those post-war, and you know, and everybody else followed. I mean, you'll find, you know, if, uh, I can... Uh, maybe which is what I should do is give you a list of characteristics of British post-war drums. Yeah. But one of the big things is this, this, this expertise in die casting, which, uh, premier had, and that's why, you know, those beautiful art deco curvy, the, you know, the classic premier, um, full length flush brace lug, mm-hmm. you know, the one I'm talking about. Sure. Um, that, that that appears in the, you know in the forties straight after the war and and, and that ran ran right through to the seventies and and along with diecast hoops. So these are the characteristics of all the UK drums really from nineteen fifties sixties. Is that um, they nearly all had diecast hoops. That's interesting. Um, they often had these diecast flush braces. Uh, huh. Yeah, and the, the, the diecasting then extended to like things like stand bases. And tom brackets and so on. Hmm. Uh, So if you look at all those, you know what I mean. That's solid
0: casting, zinc casting. Yeah, exactly. Very, Um, very sturdy and and well made.
1: Yeah, they are. Yeah, and uh, you know, Premier obviously, you know, is very famous for the the chrome plating, which they took a lot of care with. They did all their own chrome plating uh, in those factories. They had three three or four facilities in in Leicester. Yeah, Yeah. Leicester, where they were based. Um, But but the other companies did. Did as well, you know, like, um, uh, I should probably get on with this, shouldn't I? Because <laughs> we're not going to get much further. <laughs> well, uh,
0: this episode is brought to you by Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street, Nashville, Tennessee. Call 615-383-8343 or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Let's jump jump ahead to, to like, like I said, with... All right. So after that kind of the war, obviously, I yeah. mean, that's something here in America that we don't have that history of factories being bombed and having to recover mm. from that. Things did change during the war effort. But then um, let's talk about sort of the the post war, you know, the British invasion. I mean, it just swept mm. the country you guys were the, the coolest thing that's ever happened. Uh, you got Ringo, like you mentioned, Charlie yeah. Watts. You have all these, yeah. you have John Bonham, Keith Moon. You have yeah. all these amazing musicians who just took America by storm. Um, who were the, I mean, obviously, Premier was, you know, you have Keith Moon playing Premier, You have uh, Bonham who played Ludwig, which American brand. But um, yeah. what, how, yeah. how did companies like, Beverly, Judson, Heyman, Ajax, how did that, how did they fare after the war? And who was their major clientele?
1: Okay. Well, no one had any money and we were totally in awe of everything American. So Premier definitely had, were the market leaders, but um, Ajax were probably second to Premier and Ajax was a very cool company. Um, If you look at an Ajax set, from post-war 47 onwards right through to the 60s, they always look to me very similar to a Gretsch kit. They've got bullet lugs uh, and they've got die hoops. Uh, and the other important thing is that they, uh, I think I'm right in saying this, I have to be careful what I say here, because things do vary a lot, but they, they also have international American sizes because, as you know, one of the big problems with... British drums, particularly with Premier, up until about 1968, is that they have some of the drums have what's known as pre-international sizes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, i.e., a standard Remo won't fit, and that's all due to the fact that over in uh, Europe we we run on a metric system, uh, whereas in America you have the imperial. I, I mean, funny enough, Britain again. Again, because we've got this so-called special relationship with America, I think we do have a special relationship sure. with America. Uh, we're a halfway house, you know. <laughs> so everybody here now, sure. everybody here now, all the kids, you know, we talks about meters and centimeters and kilometers. But we still measure our distances in miles, the same as you do. <laughs> oh, you know I mean? So we're in a sort of a mess. Yeah, yeah. and the drums are in the same sort of mess, you know. So uh, before I get <laughs> off too much of another tangent – uh Ajax drums were very, very, very cool. And a lot of people played Ajax drums. And like I say, if you look at them, they look very, very similar to uh to uh, to Gretsch. They look good sort of Gretsch to me. They got they're the ones, you know, where I was saying that most of the companies had full-length um mm-hmm. uh flush brace, you know, premier style lugs. Uh Ajax didn't. They had these these bullet logs with uh, and because everybody had diecast hoops therefore an ajax set looks very similar to uh, a gretsch set you know and people i think some some people anyway were aware of that so a lot of the big pre rock and roll stars uh, certainly played ajax um but it didn't seem to uh, you know and people played them when they were young, I'm just trying to think of a name. You know, people like Ginger Baker played Ajax drums hmm. uh, early on. Everybody at some stage played Premier. The 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 this, the thing that people started out on because because people had no money. <laughs> I mean, we were really impoverished in the 50s yeah. when these guys were starting off. Sure. So um, one one of the, one of the names that uh, that everybody will talk will bring up is um, is Gigster. I don't know whether you've come across Gigster. No. But Gigster was the, um, the cheapest version uh, that you could possibly get. Just about everybody you can think of started out with a Gigster. I mean, Gigster, they, they were awful. I mean, they were just single headed things with terrible.
0: The beginner, that's, that's your, your, your starter.
1: Uh, a real, real, real cheap, real cheap yeah. beginner's drums. But there were a uh, lot of them about. There were a lot of them about. So that was uh, this was this was Jensen's. Uh, that was their cheapest, uh, you know. Dallas's Johnny uh, Jensen's cheapest thing hmm. uh, was Gigster, um, but and and at the top, uh, you know, like on everybody, you know, like all your uh, anyone you want to name, you know, Phil Collins, Bill Bruford, uh, pretty much anyone you can think of, I imagine, started out on a Gigster so yeah. uh cheap, you know, and then they would uh very often move up to a premier Olympic uh, Olympic uh you know Premier's budget version. Uh but as we know, I think this is very similar to America as well. Uh they had the same shells as Premier's you know, a drum company would just make one shell, that was it. it's a drum shell. <laughs> uh, no one knew what they were. Uh, most British ones by the way were birch. That's interesting. Um and before before the war they were ash. Uh, there was a lot of ash uh, uh, wood about uh, before the war, and then after the war, people tended to be birch. So you know, um, most of these companies made three ply birch with solid reinforcing rings. You know, which quite often were beech. So birch and beech. You know, these these are the you know. Whereas you had maple or whatever mahogany in in America. Um, a few people played other things like uh, like for instance Carlton carton they weren't terribly well known but they were around and they they would occasionally get uh an endorser you know like carton's big thing in the 60s was the guy called bobby graham who had a kit called the big beat which had two big top toms which no one had uh in the in back in the day you know he had a 12 inch and a 14 inch Top Tom, you know what I mean? Two toms mounted on a bass drum, which hardly anybody yeah. had uh, at that time. Very innovative. He, he, yeah, and he influenced Dave Clark, who people will know about Dave Clark 5. Of course. Uh, he influenced Dave Clark to have two toms the wrong way round on his Rogers set. Hmm. Does, does that ring a bell? Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And so Bobby Graham's very important. Or Bobby Graham, you know, we'll be done for slander now. Uh, Bobby Graham is the guy who actually played on those. Dave Clark record. I mean, Dave Clark was a pretty, Dave Clark, was a very clever man who produced that stuff. Sure. That's common. Uh, that happens. Uh, again, going, going slightly off. People know <laughs> it happens. Yeah. yeah. And Bobby Graham's also got the distinction. He, he played on, you know, you really got me by the kinks, which is, you know, generally recognized as the first heavy riff record way back in 1964. Definitely. Um, yeah. So he was, a, you know, a t- top session guy, uh, uh, in this country or to Um, their, their thing was called autocrat. Uh, have you come across the name autocrat?
0: I've, I've seen just on drum archive, just, again, in, uh, in, um, Meg in, in catalogs, because a lot of yeah. these, it's just interesting. A uh, kind of a side note is these don't like, I I'm speaking for myself in my limited yeah. sort of, you know, I'm not in a, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is not a hub for, you know, finding crazy vintage drums. There's stuff around, but, but it's not a thing where you go and you see, you know, you come across, um, like an Ajax drum set somewhere. I'm sure they are in America, you know, around a little bit, I'm sure. But you don't find these just sitting around, like even in, in music shops, um, you don't see these very often popping up, um, which is just an interesting kind of side note that, is that the same for you guys? with, Let's say, is it more rare to see like a Slingerland set sitting in a shop than it is the, you know, some of these?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, one of the great tragedies of all this is that what happened was cause, because, you know, once Ringo came along, everybody wanted a Ludwig. Yeah. Uh, everybody wanted anything that was American anyway, because it just appeared to be so much more the same as they wanted a fender guitar but there sure. was a good reason to want a fender guitar because you couldn't get anything close to it over here but we did have great drums and th- the irony is that like i say those drums from the 50s and 60s they all had very thin shells with reinforcing rings and they had die cast hoops and you know really well made die cast uh lugs and so they're actually very good drums but they look terribly outdated and sad and old mm. and you know, they had this. Ter- we had this terrible image problem. You know, so like an autocrat set. If you if you see an autocrat set from the uh, uh, from the 60s, <clears throat> they've got these premier style full length flush lugs, but they're sort of very bulbous. Yeah. And if you look at it, you suddenly think, well, hang on a minute, that's exactly like. The reissued Yamaha recording custom, you know, that was reissued in
0: 2016.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't know, you know, people are familiar with this, you know, sure. great drums. Uh, but they made that famous recording custom lug, which, obviously, by the way, is copied directly from Premier. So, can, mm. Yamaha, that might be saying that. Uh, that's a <laughs> you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. I love Yamaha, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Yamaha player. I, I, Yamaha, fantastic. A great company. Um, but, that lug, you know, which um, Premier, you know, used for years and years until it became, it started to look out of fashion. So if Premier stopped doing it just at the moment that Yamaha started doing it. <laughs> That's, uh, the last. But anyway, the, an Autocrat kit um, has got these bulbous versions of that lug. And if you look at it, you think, well, like I say, it's it's very much like, a you know, the latest recording custom design, we all know yeah. these are terrific drums, and they are out there. And, and what happened with with them is they were all thrown away. People just oh, dump them in skips. And it's only oh. in recent years that people, you know, through, you know, uh, we, we, we have a vintage show here run by Simon, John, Simon, John, by Simon, John vintage show that Rob Cook comes over to, you You know, we have that in, in the Midlands every year. Um, and these drums turn up there and we, we, d- we do now have a, a lovely set of people who, realize the value of these drums and the dude. So, I mean, I, I would, I would advise anyone if you, if you see one, grab it, grab Definitely. it, hang on to it. You know, the yeah. same with Beverly drums. I mean, Beverly drums from, um, Beverly was bought by Albert Delaporte of premier in, in 1958. So from 1958 on Beverly drums that were actually made in the premier factory. Um, hmm. but they were made very, but it was a separate company and beverly they used to advertise themselves as american style drums and so they got a premier shells which are great shells uh but slightly more americanized you know slightly more hip hardware so if you see uh a a beverly kit uh these are great sets of drums i shouldn't be telling you really it should be a secret you know <laughs> yeah, we're gonna <laughs> everybody's gonna they start still, buying I them up everybody's gonna be buying them up um to just quickly say about Heyman. i mean Heyman came about because um either arbiter who's the guy who sold ringo's first ludwig who used to own drum city in in london um either arbiter um bought carlton Okay, so the Carlton, by that time, okay. was dying on its yeah. feet. Uh, again, because it had this old-fashioned image, um, so they gave up the ghost. Uh, and also, Ivor joined with Dallas, if you remember. That's the uh, the parent company of Carlton, uh, and yes. they formed a company called Dallas Arbiter. And Ivor was always very much into drums, and uh, he was very interesting guy you should talk to bob henry about him um and uh he decided to make because Ivor had, had had the ludwig either was the guy who brought ludwig into britain uh, in 1962 onwards where you know um ending up with you know ringo buying them so so on story everybody knows um but he de- he he lost that dealership and he decided he was going to make a british drum to rival the American drums because up until that time, it was just premier and premier by that time was starting to look rather old fashioned at that time. Um, so he got to, he bought the Carlton factory down in, uh, in Kent and took over the whole Carlton thing just said, right, we're going to just make something much more American, you know? So, um, uh, that, that, and that's how Heyman came about and they designed the lug, uh jerry evans who was working with him had had a um a george way kit uh in the 60s
0: with the round lug exactly
1: yeah. and they were thinking well what sort of lug can we have we've got to have separate lugs we can't have this nonsense flush brace premier stuff we've got to have american separate lugs and they looked at it and they and jerry said well i, I like this round turret lug you know the famous turret lug. And the, you know the the engineers down there said, well, that, that's the easiest thing to do. Just to, you know, we can knock up a circle. So if you look at the Hayman lug uh, superficially, <laughs> it's a little bit like the DW lug, but it's actually simpler. It's just a of course a circle. You know, uh, so they made that, and that that immediately made them look fabulously modern. And then Ivor had this crazy idea about lining the shells with metal. You know, he actually had the Peacede dealership at the time, and he used. Pasty simple metal to load. The, the idea then was, be, you know, 1968. We're talking about before miking had really taken off properly, and uh, so sure uh, they wanted to make the drums loud, more we projection. Said, you know, and yeah, you know, premier yeah. aren't as loud as you know they aren't as loud as Ludwig. Everybody wants a Ludwig, so how can we make them loud? I'll tell you what, we'll load <laughs> them with metal. So he did that, and of course it became it was ridiculous, you know. Uh, so then they said, well, why don't we we'll paint the inside like, um, you know, like like Ludwig's treasure coat. Uh, so the Heyman vibrosonic sonic lining is, you know, uh, just white paint, but it's really thick white paint. It's very reflective uh, in a, a surface, and it did make those drums loud. And they also had a 13-inch tom, because we didn't have 13-inch toms back then. We all had 12-inch tom, uh, do you know what I mean? So that's why Heyman took off. And Heyman yeah, was a definitely. real last stab attempt by the British drum industry to come up. and it was very successful i mean it, you know lots of people played hayman drums late 60s early 70s yeah uh, the yeah. most famous is probably simon kirk with free you know if you if you see the footage of you know free at sure. the other white festival in 1970 with this battered hayman kit i mean people only had one drum kit in those days i mean the, the heads on the kit are absolutely battered to death you know and there's simon thrashing away playing <laughs> all right now it's a wonderful sight uh and yeah, that is so a hayman cool. drum kit you know and, and again uh those drum kits are gold dust again now i shouldn't be saying this because up until very recently you could pick them up for next to nothing but um i, I think probably the same way as you can get a uh a slingling kit as you say cheaper in america than we can here if we if we want to buy a 60 slingling it's going to cost us a lot of money to get it over here uh whereas you probably pick them up still over there fairly cheap yeah i Uh, mean same thing here everything's getting
0: everything's getting pretty expensive i mean that's that's i think yeah and i'm probably not helping by having a podcast about vintage drums but um (laughs) exactly the the interest is growing um which I think yeah. is a good transition too. So, so before we end, I'm assuming that like many drum companies, they just got beat by the global market of of uh, obviously Premier went on, and then they're, they're still around. I know it's more of uh you know being yeah. made in the in the Far East, but um, so it's kind of different. But I would just imagine right that these these went the way of just they couldn't keep up with you know they
1: the they all market. went they all went except for premier. So, you know, of those yeah, five yeah. lines, premier ended up making Beverly drums and Beverly drums are fabulous. And if you see those get one, um, and, uh, all the others, they just threw in the, threw in the tail, you know, Ajax boozy yeah. Hawks gave up. I mean, Ajax boozy Hawks, you know, major company, they eventually, um, started to take drums from, um, from premier also so that they all went to a premier did was already way ahead of everybody else and they actually did really well i mean because the the beat boom was so big that even though everybody wanted a ludwig kit most people couldn't afford one so you know a premier kit was two-thirds of the price of a a ludwig kit you know so people still went on buying Premiers and olympics and they were good drums so they went and then premier went through uh, in fact i mean premier they made this massive factory was newly built in 1977, which is right at the end of, you know, um, it's almost like their trouble started from the moment they, they moved to this massive factory, but they've had several, <laughs> you know, revivals ever since. I mean, every decade premier has reinvented. Yeah. I mean, what happened of course was that the, the original family, the Delaporters. um, uh, were finally, you know, the same way as Ludwig sold out and Slingland sold out, and so on. Um, the the, the Della Porta's family, being altruistic, they probably stuck it out a little bit too long. Yeah, to the point where I mean, they could have they could have sold up earlier and taken the money, but they didn't. They they stuck with it up to the point where they were losing so much money that they were ousted. So yeah. that's another story. That's noble. But, you know, they were ousted <laughs> out of the family. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they were ousted from the, from the company. And, and from that, and, and that, by the way, is when the, pre, the whole Premier image changed completely. So you went from the classic Premier that we all know and love to the Signia and the Janista range. Yes, sure. Which are also very much to do, I don't know whether, again, I don't know whether Mike told you about this, but Yamaha mm-hmm. bought Premier. Yeah. Uh, okay, and Yamaha's and I've got a lot of time for Yamaha to come here. They actually did Premier a huge favor. I mean, they you know kept them from going completely under, modernized the factory, put in all their air seal molds and stuff, and, and then when they left, they left them there, uh, you know, so that Premier could then modernize, and they came up with the Signia range, which is their first maple drum set you know they yeah, made the wonderful drum drums set, uh, in britain before yeah yeah and you know they went on and then they reinvented themselves several times i mean it's been very much a rocky road as we know uh but you know quite a few generations of premier drums after that are really terrific drums you know right up until very modern times and then yeah. in the end of course they, they ended up you know shipping it all to the far east the same yeah. as everybody else but that is another
0: that's another long, story complicated story <laughs> yeah. uh, well jeff why don't we tell people here at the end where they can uh where they can find you because we didn't mention this at the beginning but you obviously are a very uh esteemed author um people can find the drum handbook and the drum book which is like just the cover <laughs> of that alone is very uh like you see it it's like if you search i don't think you did it on purpose but you you sort of like You 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 tricked Google because if you ever type drum book, (laughs) you come up right away. Yeah, it's the drum book. So um,
1: yeah, you have no idea how much hassle that was. Uh, Yeah, no. Um, the drum book is the first edition is 1997, and then ten years later, 2007, there's a second edition. Um, and I, you know, I I had ten years more knowledge I suppose but we what we did was the second edition i mean look look go on and buy it because i can say this in all honestly because i don't make any money out of it because any money i made out of those books i made at the time you know what i mean so so i'm saying this sure. um yeah uh, you know uh, quite very simply yeah so you know just feel that um yeah get them because they're full of wonderful pictures they it's called the drum book and it's called the history of the rock drum kit, but it isn't. It's the history of the kit. It was a misnomer. It's basically a hundred years of, you know, drum development. And I, I did my, it nearly killed me. I mean, I did my utmost to put the entire history of the drum set into one small book, you know, smallish book. Sure. And then, and the illustrations, the, the photo, the photography in there is wonderful. I can say that cause I didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> it really lavishly illustrated. And then what I did do was, in the back of this book there's uh, a potted history of eighty about eighty drum companies, so that really did nearly kill me i uh, um, and mm. um, you know and they it pretty much stands up i mean i obviously there are mistakes here and there, but um you know all the stuff I've just been talking about most of that is is in there in much 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 more detail um so it's it's a really you know it's a nice read, you know
0: well, mine is in the mail, and I'm excited to get it. And, and like you said, you're not making money on it anymore. You you can no. find it for, I think I found it for like $6. So really, people can can just Google it and find it.
1: Yeah, get get secondhand ones. I found a sort of, <laughs> I nearly bought a dozen the other day because <laughs> I thought oh, I'll have those and give them to people. Um, yeah, That's so you can, you can pick them up. The drum handbook, by the way, is, is about the actual, what, what a drum kit is it's not about the history. There is a bit of history in there, but it's about, you know, how a drum kit is built and, and you know, all that sort of sure. stuff. So uh, I'll just say that, you know, uh, a lot of that, uh, I was inspired by John Aldridge's book, you know, the very first one and, yeah. and Harry Kangany, you know, the, you know, the Harry Kangany book, the, the first one was a beautiful little book of you know, the history of the uh, American companies. Uh, and then Rob Cook has done this yeah. incredible, you know, thing, you know, of, uh, collating the whole of you know just absolutely amazing but this is the entire issue of the trump set so i say it nearly (laughs) did for me but um, i'm glad i did it someone had to do it
0: (laughs) well and then before we go Um, people can also check out John Bonham, The Thunder of Drums, which is just a famous book, which you wrote with Chris Welch. And also uh, you wrote a Cream book. And then um, there's also BBC's Rock School, which I've posted videos of, which, again, I think we can talk about that for for an hour. But um, people can search that on YouTube and check it out. I'm just uh, going
1: to add one thing, which is also Rhythm Magazine, which I've written for for the last 30 years. And please subscribe to Rhythm because... In these difficult times, if it disappears, it will never reappear. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going, you Absolutely. Know, uh, and I've written a vintage column in there for, I think I've done 230 vintage columns. Now, uh, we do one every month and, uh, yeah, and they're, they're fabulous with huge help from all these people I mentioned and many more. Um, uh, so it's a treasure trove. Cool. So
0: yeah. Rhythm. Rhythm jeff thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show no and problem. i've really enjoyed talking with you yeah. and uh getting to know you over the the last couple of weeks of getting ready for this so I'm, I'm excited to get my uh drum book in the mail oh, and, and start digging i'm in. sure you'll enjoy it <laughs> well thank
1: you very much yeah and thanks for asking and uh, i hope there weren't too many mistakes <laughs> oh you did great all right good luck to everybody keep safe thanks jeff yeah speak to you soon